0: Hi everyone and welcome to FTK Q&A episode 41. I'm your host Dave. And I'm here for another week sharing conversations I enjoy having with interesting people that I know in the running world. I'm here to ask questions that I'm interested in hearing the answers to, and that I hope shed uh, light on many of the peculiar interests that we runners have, whether that be around injury, performance, events, or culture. Now, one of the great things about running is its simplicity and accessibility. You don't need a lot of equipment and you can do it just about anywhere. Perhaps the most important tool though is the humble running shoe. And one of the peculiar things I notice about running and runners is that individually and collectively, we have a habit of making simple things really complicated. We take putting one foot in front of the other and we wrap it up in all kinds of overlays and layers, whether it's cultural overlays, um, social overlays, um, you know, maybe even spiritual overlays for some people. We try to complicate it with a whole range of different numbers and metrics. All these layers of wrapping in an otherwise very simple endeavor, um, they can elicit a whole range. Of emotions that can simultaneously promote uh, both healthy but probably also unfortunately some un- unhealthy relationships with running. And I feel like the humble running shoe has undergone a similar fate. It's almost a metaphor for what running as a sport, as a hobby, as a means to an end has become. The running shoe was first and foremost an interface between the ground and and your foot, a layer of protection so that we wouldn't cut our feet, uh, poke them on pointy rocks and pebbles um, and just general protection, simple. But just as running is a simple endeavor that humans have wrapped up in science, in culture and all manner of complicated things, the shoe, something designed to provide an interface between the ground and the foot has also become something way more complicated. Shoes have cultural significance. Shoes are performance enhancing. Shoes cure injuries. Shoes are fashion. Shoes can influence identity, even. So, today we've got Mitch Larkin here from the running company in Elbert Park. Now, I've worked casually at Mitch's store over the past 18 months and have known Mitch even longer still as his uh, one time running coach. And he's someone I consider a good friend. Mitch is one of the most interesting human beings I've ever met. (laughs) He's a quintessential outdoorsman. He's a ski mountaineer. He's a multidisciplinary cyclist. He's a runner um, and has even been known to compete in cattle dog competitions. (laughs) But for today, Mitch is here as a shoe dog. He's been around shoes for a long time and understands shoes and feet, uh, dare I say it, better than uh, some podiatrists. He works closely with physios, with podiatrists, and with other sports medicine and sports performance specialists to simplify a necessary piece of the puzzle for many runners, navigating injury, performance, and at the end of the day, putting one foot in front of the other. Mitch, welcome to For the Kudos. Thanks, mate. Strong intro. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll try and keep my words brief from here. Um, but firstly, uh, I wanted to start things off with a, a simple question. What's a shoe dog, Mitch? I think if we could look up a definition... Um,
1: though it wouldn't exist, it would probably say uh, someone who is a shoe nerd or a shoe geek. So, uh, probably a wardrobe full of shoes and uh, probably commenting on weird little uh, Reddit um, posts, YouTube videos, all those sort of things. Or maybe even just working in a run
0: specialty store. Yeah i can't imagine you commenting on too many reddit posts but you do own a running shoe store uh the running company in in elbert park um where i've worked as well and 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 had the good fortune of seeing you work with a lot of runners and and walkers that come into the store um mitch what are what's what are some of the top questions you're asking um people that walk through the door our first thing we kind of need to know when we get someone
1: in store is You know, most of the things you'd want to understand from a clinical setting, like training history, injury history, uh, shoe history, uh, presenting tissue stress if there is one, uh, their training frequency, strength component if it's relevant. Um, And then we really need to use that and piece together what we're seeing uh, visually uh, when we look at people move on the treadmill. Um, to get a bigger picture of how we might use the shoes to help this person, you know, given their goals. Um, sometimes they're reha- rehabbing, um, sometimes they're in the middle of a build for something and they're healthy. So we just try and get as much information as we can to paint a clear picture.
0: Yeah, cool. And then I guess with that picture, you then your you, your tool is your, your running shoe, obviously. Um, and and the running shoes have, I guess, different features in in, in different shoes. And um, but there's probably you know probably some broad categories that shoes kind of fall under. Um, and and at least I'm thinking of kind of your neutral and your structured shoes. Um, maybe more recently, also like the idea of this meta rocker. Um, how can you maybe talk a little bit about kind of those sort of um, you know, like broad broad categories of shoes and, and, and what they sort of mean? Yeah.
1: yeah, so broadly speaking, I'd say neutral and structured makes sense because um, that's generally where we would uh, fork off and take people once we get an idea of their movement. Um, interestingly, that will probably, change quite a bit in the next few years with the the direction that shoes are heading. Um, the rocket sold stuff that's been around for probably, you know, ten to fifteen years in some form. Um, but we're seeing the frequency of that uh, definitely increase for people using them as daily trainers. Um, but a rocket Sole shoe, there's basically anything from, you know, an early to late stage uh, rocker and for those who don't really uh, understand what that means it's basically a curvature on the uh, midsole and it allows the weight to be shifted either easier or in a different direction Um, so it can help with people that have issues like a limited ankle range of motion um, or sometimes you know if their foot is in a state where a range of motion through the metatarsals is limited or not wanted we can use a stiff rocket sole shoe to help um, encourage that weight shift without loading those areas up. Um, and then structured shoes have historically had an element in them which will make uh, the midsole less compressible in a certain area, usually on the medial edge um, and quite often under the rear and midfoot. And that was thought to help um, control uh, the foot structure through mid stance. Um, You know, over time, we've kind of seen that it has little effect on controlling the vertical deviation of the foot, but it can provide integrity to the midsole. Um, And for someone who shifts a lot of weight medially, that can give the shoe more integrity. And therefore, um, you know, part of the work that they're doing uh, through that running gait can be offloaded with the shoe having more integrity through there. So they're the two broad categories, neutral, structured, and yeah, Rocket would fall into both of those as well, but it's definitely become, I guess, a bigger category in itself.
0: Yeah, nice. Um, There's definitely, I think, historically been a probably misplaced, uh, almost synonymous, this idea of a structured shoe and this idea of, you know, a rear foot pronation, um, which, yeah, uh, you you and I probably can understand why um, why it was kind of you had this this attribution between the two the two variables um, but why yeah particularly particularly with structured shoes because I think a lot of people think oh if I pronate a lot or if my foot rolls in a lot I need a structured shoe why why might they not need a structured shoe even if their foots roll rolling in in so so to speak um, it's a good question. Um, I
1: think if we looked just at the anatomy involved with pronation, um, you've got six joints: your telocoral, subtalar, talonavicular, calcaneal cuboid, metatarsal cuneiform, and your first MPJ. You can you can understand already that it's a really articulated um, movement. So. It's not unusual for there to be, you know, quite a range, particularly with different people, of movement. Um, and it's a really necessary thing because it provides a stable base uh, for, the, for the foot when conforming to uneven surfaces. Um, it provides a shock absorption through that foot flexibility. Um, and then after that, it's able to transmit those rotational forces into forward progression, which is a lot of what people overlook when they you know, frame pronation is bad, mm-hmm. is that it, it creates propulsion um, because it's a rigid lever in the later stage um, as we engage that big toe um, that helps us propel forward. So we want to see it occur. And just because you do pronate, and most people will to some degree, um, doesn't mean you're going to need structure. In some cases, it could be um, counterproductive and cause uh, unwanted mechanical change. So it's really, it's really. You got to be really careful that you don't just jump in because, I guess, when we talk about support or structure in a shoe, it's not a good thing for everyone. You really need to warrant it
0: mechanically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense, and um, yeah, re- reinforces I think. Which hopefully we'll touch on a bit. It's it's good to when you're picking shoes, um, get get a second set of eyes on it, and and obviously also try things on. Um, your, uh, particularly your store, but uh, I think the running company more generally, um, part of what they do is, is is having having referrals and a referral network. So people that are coming into the store that they may have been referred there by a healthcare professional, um, they may have been referred by a friend, um, and and often that referrals secondary to some sort of problem. So so they've got an injury or or some niggle that they're dealing with. With the hope that a, a shoe choice may have an influence on that, um, what are some of the common injuries um, or complaints or niggles that you're seeing walking in in the sh- into the store, and and then also what are some of the features in the shoe that you're considering to have an effect on on those niggles or injuries? Good question. Um, we we would see
1: you kind of typical rec um, level athletes and injuries associated with that. Uh, that includes walkers too. Um, there's a lot of um, funny lifestyle factors that will probably have a big influence on, on these tissue stresses. Um, plantar fascia, we kind of used to frame it as a holiday injury because we would see these huge spikes in it um, around summer when people are going from being typically shone to spending more time with flexible shoes or no shoes um, and going through a bigger range and working the planter harder. And, you know, it starts off as sort of an acute thing where there's some, you know, pain under the midfoot, but they might be up in Noosa for two weeks and they continue to walk around on the sand or in thongs gripping The plug and eventually it turns into a degenerative issue. So, in those cases, when it's at that painful early stage, we might be looking to give someone, you know, a pain free first step. So, we're trying to give them the ability to keep moving around um, and maybe provide a little bit of protection under the site that's, um, you know, feeling painful under the heel. Um, But at a point along that um, healing, uh, spectrum. we actually want to get the foot moving again. So some of the early uses for going for a more cushioned shoe um, and which would typically mean that it's a little bit stiffer, we'd want to move away fo- from down the track when we're looking at remodelling them. So we would actually look to get them into something that is going to allow that foot to work a little bit harder, though in a safe range. Um so yeah, initially more cushioning could be something we would look at. Um, again, it's really subjective, person to person, because we can't just throw everyone in a high stack shoe. It doesn't feel great for everyone. There is such thing as too much shoe, um, so that's something we really need to flesh out. Another one that we'd see a lot of is like you know Achilles tendinopathy. Um, there's a lot of ways that that might have occurred, um, but one thing that we don't want to put do or put people in at the early stage is a flatter shoe. Thankfully, most stuff is you know in the eight mil plus range. So we'd be looking to get them in something with a higher heel to toe drop, maybe something a little stiffer under that rear foot too. We just don't want to have any moment loads where you know the midsole is compressible because that can also load that Achilles up. Um, that can be you know something that would help get them moving again but not totally limit that ankle range of motion because that's also what we want to see occur as they start to heal um and the other one would just be you know fit issues like neuromas bursitis, any of those things in the forefoot a lot of the time what we see is it's related to fit so shoes too short the shoes too narrow um, and in that case we want to increase space and get the foot into a more relaxed position so we can um, relieve pressure
0: on the affected area yeah very good so kind of as a summary um, yeah you yeah. Your plantar fascia and Achilles issues are obviously common ones and then your size-related pathologies um, commonly more towards the front of your foot. Um, but, yeah, your plantar fascia, you might be using something more cushiony, more stiff, your Achilles, you might be using something with a bigger heel pitch, so bigger difference from the heel height versus the the four foot toe height, um, and then of course getting the size right, which um, yeah seems uh, certainly from my experience too. It's a it's a common presentation when people come in the store.
1: Definitely um, on that, I had someone a really interesting one the other day, which probably I guess is a little bit of a case study, but. Um, We'll call her athlete X for this reason, just so she can remain anonymous. Um, But her physio had sent her in with uh, flexor halus longus overload and medial tibial stress on the left side. Um, I had a look at her on the treadmill. She had balanced weight distribution during mid stance, um, but tracked in late um, as her big toe would have been engaging. And there was a limited range of motion through her big toe. Um, but the first thing before I got on the treadmill that was immediately obvious was that her foot was really wide and as soon as she took her shoe off, I saw how much of her foot structure had almost relieved itself when it got out. And I immediately thought, this is good because there's this is going to be a really simple change that's going to make a huge difference for this athlete. Um, I didn't mention, but you know, she's running at the highest level. She's uh, an Olympic level um, triathlete. Uh, So she's no stranger to training. Uh, She works hard and she wants to get all these things right because they, you know, they all add up. Um, And so once I noticed the big toe activity and range of motion compared with the other foot were limited, um, I also filmed her from the front and could see that a lot of her foot structure – and particularly the lack of talus glide um, was really limiting how much she could get over her big toe. So she's supinating early. And a lot of those tissues on the medial side that um, initially thought were being overloaded from her being unstable are actually switching on and not disengaging. She's trying to use them to create propulsion. And that's what's created the overload through the medial side. So it's kind of a bit of a it's a flag, but it's a false flag because when you look closer, mm-hmm. instead of looking at what is occurring and we ask the question, what isn't actually occurring for her? Um, we get a better answer. And you know, the simple change for her was we increased the space and allowed her foot to relax. Um, that relieved the valgus position Her big toes being consistently forced into. So the range of motions straight away increased. We moved away from stiffer-soled shoes, which she'd been put in, um, to encourage some of that first MPJ loading and and get weight through there in a safer manner Um, because her big toe pain wasn't the primary issue. It was an issue because it had been jammed in the shoe. So we don't need to offload it. We need to get it moving. And then, you know, external treatment that her physio went through was, you know, manipulating the foot structure and mobilizing that we use a temporary uh, offloading with heel raises and some targeted strength and conditioning, and she goes from being, you know, an eight out of ten, limited at you know thirty or forty k's a week, to uh, being two out of ten in seven days from an issue that's been around for six months. And no one would have ever said, you know, it's a shoe size issue, um, but it was, and that was the the you know the crux of the issue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, don't look over the Overlook the simple things. Um, I guess you wouldn't buy gardening gloves that were too small for your hands and then wonder why you can't operate at all.
0: It just, you wouldn't do it. It's That's that's such a good example. And I think, um, yeah, coming back to the fundamentals, um, and I think that's probably, at least from my experience, maybe a misconception people have of what a shoe's function is. And, and, and I think that misconception is that... Uh, stability comes from how snug the shoe fits. So, it sh- so it should, should be quite tight, um, should fit firmly around everything. But um, we, t- you talked, you touched on earlier about, you know, how complex the the foot and ankle structure is and how many joints are, are can kind of contributing to all this, this movement. And if you've got a shoe that's like fitting really snugly um, and not allowing those joints to, to work to their, to their full ability. Um, then yeah, if, if one joint's not working really well, you're compensating and overusing another joint. And yeah, the fact that you can, you can have an influence on that just by getting someone in the right size pair of shoes. Um, yeah, the, the, the simple things, but a really good, um, really good story. And it sounds like a pretty good outcome too. Um, I guess uh, you talked about a few shoe features that we that you use there in terms of um, you know particularly in that example going away going to something a bit more flexible, not as much material, bigger size. Um, in the last, particularly in the last five ten years like shoe technology has just like gone through the roof. There's, there's been massive, massive changes in, um, you know, the fundamentals of the shoe, like foams are changing. Um, you know, we're now seeing carbon plates in shoes. Um, you know, some of this, you know, has a performance as a performance kind of origin in terms of what's being, what's you're trying to achieve. Um, but also, you know, uh, has a role probably in tissue unloading, um, and, and relieving some sort of foot foot issues. Um, these changes, do you, do you think like, are they all positive or, or are some of the changes maybe having unintended, maybe negative consequences as well? I'm, I'm thinking particularly like about carbon plates, um, really, really compliant foams, um, high stack shoes, things like that. It's a, another great question. I think, If we consider um,
1: that the underlying, um, I guess, cause of a lot of the running-related tissue stress we see being overuse, too much of anything is normally going to have an undesired outcome. So we always encourage people to have variety in their rotation, um, albeit appropriate. Um, But that sort of helps regulate some of that overuse, Obviously, we've seen a big influx of super shoes and even just the variety of super shoes. And, you know, the downside of that is you almost get spoiled in a sense where you want to spend all your time in super shoe foam. So you go from doing two sessions a week um, and racing in them to going, oh, no, it's just 30 minutes. I'll chuck it on. And that. It's not so much probably the shoe itself, although they are often, you know, less stable and they don't perform as well at a lower speed. Um, I guess the first thing is they're not necessary in daily training. We're always having conversations with people about making a conservative choice um, for the long term outcome. Like we want to keep you moving for as long as possible. Um, and one of the things that we know may limit you moving as long as possible is getting a tissue stress from running too much in one shoe. So jogging around in super shoes, I'm not saying don't do it because really choice is one of the freedoms you do get to exercise with your running, and that's why we love it. But you, you've got to consider the um, or weigh up the outcome of running in a super shoe or chucking on, you know your daily shoe that's a lot more stable, it lets you get out the door. You don't need to be blown away every day, but at least you can come back and know that you know, that regulating
0: by swapping shoes is going to have a good outcome on um, you know, your overall week. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's almost like, yeah, every, everything in moderation and and you raised a good point about, um, you know, having shoes, shoes in rotation. So particularly people that are, you know, running, you know, more than three, four, five times a week, um, you know, having some variety in, in the shoes that they're wearing is maybe as a, a strategy to get the benefits from some of these new technologies, um, but not overuse them in such a way that um, yeah, your, your foot function and and the strength and, and uh, resilience of your foot is changing. Yeah. Um, very good. Um, some of the you know the new changes in the shoes that we're seeing, um, and and some of the changes we've seen in the past, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking more than the last five ten years, um, we've we've seen kind of these you know minimalist shoes. Um, they kind of went through a, a a bit of a buzz, you know, t- um, probably fifteen years ago. Um, uh, I'm thinking of like yeah uh, what were they called? Vibrams, um, five fingers, yeah, the old five fingers. And then, you know, um, it kind of almost went to the other end of the spectrum when, um, Hoka came, came onto the market and their, their sort of, their big thing was these maximalist shoes, lots and lots of cushion. Um, it it may be unfair to call them, um, trends, I guess, um, it, probably better to call them features. Um, but I, what's what's your impression on on some of those you know trends or features, and 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 how are they important? I guess in your shoes prescription, like minimalist maximalist is one one area, you know, now we see shoes that have, you know, um, zero zero drop. So they're, they're a flatter shoe. We have shoes that are, have wider toe boxes, um, all things that are kind of emerging a little bit more recently. Again, I think
1: probably comes back to the fact that there's such a variety of um, not only foot types and athlete types, but needs. I mean, it's pretty common for someone to have a shoe with a higher stack for the easy days, the long days, um, or if they're for feeling particularly beat up. And, you know, that's where a brand like Hocker might have quite a few options. They also play in those other spaces now where they're doing shoes with a lower stack that feel, you know, for some a little less clunky um, and they get a little bit more ground feel and proprioception. Um, I would still class them as trends though because you do see these things cycle in and out in the running industry and definitely with minimalism it cycled out with a big lawsuit um and you know some of that stuff it's driven by marketing alone um that otherwise it would still be here um and i think you know with those things we've got to look at what is actually working at a high level and then also what's working at a consumer level i mean the barefoot running thing has always been humorous because we we understand people's motivation to purify their running if you like by getting in you know contact with the ground more but the truth is you're missing you know a lifetime of adaption you've spent most of your time with with a shoe on um, probably with your foot structure jammed up in casual shoes um, we spent a lot of time s- you know sitting, and if you're a new runner and you've decided to jump in and start running and start in minimalist footwear, you're asking your body to do an enormous amount. Um, and if you've got patience and really your end goal is just to end up running in minimalist shoes, that's great. But if your role well, or your goal is to get running and moving and running faster, there's a limited amount of function that's going to provide you maybe twice a week 20 minutes is going to be good it's going to get your foot moving a little bit more and you know get the foot structure stronger but i can guarantee you're not going to run as fast as you would if you
0: were in appropriate footwear running more volume and staying injury free yeah and i think that's it's such a good point and and that's probably maybe that's the danger with trends is that when, when a trend takes off and someone's following a trend, um, some of those questions go out the door. Um, and so the the why behind why you're using a minimalist or maximalist you might get lost um, and, and, and yeah, where, where you potentially run into those problems, um, I guess, when you're, you know, whether, yeah, trends or, or features, whatever you want to call them, you, you did mention a little bit, kind of that consumer end of the spectrum and then that higher end, you know, obviously being the, the shoe companies and you, you as a, yeah, as a shoe dog and, 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 and having a running specialty store, you're kind of, you've kind of got contact with kind of both ends of the spectrum and, you know, you're having conversations with with um, reps from shoe companies, and you're obviously having conversations with with um, people coming in, the consumers buying the shoes. Um, I'm interested. Uh, what are some of the questions that shoe shoe reps and shoe companies are asking you, um, knowing that you've kind of got your, your hand on the beat um, with what consumers are, are are reporting and feeling and wanting?
1: Um, well, I guess like with, with any company that's selling something, they want to know what's working. So they want to know what's selling. And I guess with our doors, it's not always something that you would see reflected through the industry because the way that we're um, using the shoes, it's not through prescription. Even though we do bring out options, it's really being guided by feedback, mainly subjective, and then some of the objective stuff that we see on the treadmill Um, to what they might end up in. And a lot of that is us teasing it out of the consumer. Um, So yeah, we we pass on what's working often with raised eyebrows, um, but the brands want to know things like what's some of the fit feedback. You know, if we get consistent issues that the heel counter's not holding people in, Um, that would be passed on a lot of the time depth in the forefoot width in the forefoot is it fitting short, is it fitting long as you've discovered not all nine and a halves are nine Mm -hmm. and a halves across the board Um, so we pass on as much information as we can Um, we pass on stuff about how it performs on a treadmill from a stability point of view, whether it's too soft laterally, all those kind of things that even though they've been wear tested, they probably haven't been wear tested by that like weekend warrior a lot of the time the wear testers are you know runners that rack up 150 k's a week and can afford to have a few new shoes in their rotation Mm -hmm. but we want to know who how it performs on people that you know we see so they're not you know seasoned runners some of them might be but they probably lack some of that stability and experience and that's the real world testing and that's what's valuable to a, a shoe company
0: yeah are you, um, I guess, from like season to season, when when you're giving this feedback, do you do you often see like positive changes um, based on you know the feedback that you're giving, or does it feel like sometimes it's sometimes it's deaf ears, or what's the what's the feel?
1: Some, it's amazing. It's almost like a direct conduit, but others, you know, we don't expect to have um, influence on that. It, there are brands that would genuinely genuinely um value that sort of feedback and do ask for it and others you know almost too big to care and that's understandable too
0: yeah i guess that that raises another um I i guess thing that as someone that's um you know trying to get people in the right pair of shoes for them um that you're contending with is um you know a lot of people have like a brand loyalty and and you get people coming through the doors and they want to really, you know, they want a really specific shoe because, you know, maybe their friends got that shoe. Um, They they only like one brand that the the shoe they see on the shelves, a nice color, Um, all all of these things that um, have little to do with a a, a shoes function Um, and, and, and shoes have cult, they've got kind of this cultural, um kind of history as well like you say things like a a pegasus a nimbus a kiano an endorphin like people that are runners and, and and are buying shoes like they know those names and that's kind of it's the name that kind of gets them um in store like on a daily basis how are you navigating some of those um yeah, I guess that that, inf, that overriding influence on people's choice that goes beyond whether it fits well and it feels good.
1: <laughs> the first thing that we did day one was hide the mirror. So it's hidden behind a curtain. We wanted to have as little influence as possible on how it looks. Again, if it's your shoe, you can choose the colour at the end of the day. But if we can remove some of those tiny biases with people, the outcomes are generally going to be a better thing. Um with people come in often and say something like, Oh, do you sell hocker My friend, you know, my friend's recommending hocker. Like, there's no other really way to unpack that. It's about as helpful as someone saying, Do you sell a Toyota Hilux? My friend who's a tradie he drives one, he's recommended it. And you live in the inner city. You could barely have enough space to park it, let alone the extra thirty grand you'd have to spend to get a Ute you don't need. So it's it it doesn't work like that. It's so particular for the individual's needs. Um, we kind of get good at having conversations around talking people down or saying, "Let's get you on the treadmill to start," um, because that shoe could be totally inappropriate. It could be the wrong category. You know, you might be too wide for it. Who knows? But we we just have to get good at. Sort of explaining why we won't jump straight into that. It'd be so easy if we just sold shoes off the shelf all day because it would be quick, but we wouldn't be getting the outcomes that we are.
0: Yeah, and that's, um, I, I guess that's the, the, yeah, one of the, the advantages of going, going in store and, and having that in store experience compared to, you know, what a lot of people do, which is, which is buy online and, and buy based on, you know, these, these biases or, you know, the, 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 you know, the marketing around a shoe. Um, and I guess the, you know, that's probably, at least from my experience, you know, um, working with you as well, is that um, you know probably the, the biggest things at the end of the day is is just that subjective feedback and, and how how a shoe feels and um, you know I, I think when you try when you're trying on more than one pair of shoes then you've actually got reference points and then you can actually kind of get to that oh actually that's that that feels way better um and it's not a pegasus or oh it's not a it's not a ghost which of which is what i've always been in and and um i think yeah an, an important part to you know um certainly not trying to to market and sell sell what you do mitch but um but it but it is it is the advantage of of having that in store experience particularly when you're buying that fundamental thing for a runner which is their shoes. I think we've talked about that, um,
1: you know, to be more objective about it, there's that study that's often thrown around about the comfort filter. And even though there's been a lot of studies on footwear, um, I I guess trying to narrow down what's the best shoe or which there's a trap in that because it doesn't work like that. The one thing they did find consistent results with was comfort. So it is something at the end of the day that has a big bearing. Yeah,
0: Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah, good to good to constantly check in on that. You know, each time you get a new pair of shoes, because yeah, as as everyone knows, shoes shoes change from year to year, and and uh, you know that um, you know that fair pair of Nimbus you had last year might feel a bit different this year, and um, and yeah, good to have some variety as as we mentioned before in terms of trying new things and exposing your feet to 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 new stimulus from different shoes. Um, veering off topic a little bit from from what we've been on um one thing that i i kind of notice you know as a you know working in the store and then you know as a a consumer so to speak is that particularly in the last few years the the running specialty market has changed quite a bit there's there's a lot more brands uh running specialty brands around than there was you know 10 years ago um and there's almost like one you know as as an example um it's almost like there's a new category in the run specialty which is kind of this like super premium design almost like designer running gear um and you know with with premium price points to kind of reflect that um, there there's a few like track tracksmith is probably on the slightly dearer side, satisfy running, district vision, order. There's a few examples. Um I'm I'm just kind of interested in and intrigued, but um why why have they kind of emerged? Um, how have they emerged and, and are you noticing whether they have any influence on, you know, what other brands are doing? I think they've probably emerged out of, you know, people's
1: desire to have, you know, when we see these newer runners crossing over from other worlds, say, I'll take cycling for an example, where um, there's a big focus in cycling on gear. There's a lot of, you know, kit, there's a lot of upgrades, you know, most of the time can they ride their bikes to the level that, you know, they're designed to? Probably not, but it still gives them some kind of enjoyment and um that's part of what they enjoy about their sport and i think running's probably seeing growth in those spaces because you know we want to get away from just having nike you know pro half tights someone else needs to make a good half tight it's not enough good half tights and so these brands identify a little gap they use really good materials i personally think that's a good thing because if that's going to force everyone else to you know up their game that's good If people can make it cheaper and more sustainable, better again. But it's good to see, you know, these new brands come in and shake things up because it can be a stagnant space. And um, what's wrong with also, you know, running in premium stuff and feeling good? You don't have to stick with the same seven brands all the way through running. There's there's some room for some creativity and some variety, Um, you know, there's probably a ceiling on how much it should cost, but I think sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's just production cost for something makes it, you know, ridiculous when it lands in Australia. But there are other products that have been, you know, using recycling fabrics or recycled fabrics um, and premium stuff. They actually they feel better on, on the skin, you know, don't get as much um, chafing all those sort of things maybe they're more featured so i think it's a good healthy thing in any industry to have new players come in you know force people to get creative um i'd say in running there's probably been complacency for a long time so it's good
0: yeah, yeah definitely complacency in yeah brands and yeah probably complacency in lots of lots of different aspects of, of running and running culture um mitch probably the last thing, um, you know, that I've got, and, 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 um, and please chime in if there's anything else you wanted to chat about, but, um, anything that you're particularly excited about, um, upcoming in the, in the shoe game or, or, um, yeah, just the, the running specialty game that, um, well, I guess that you're allowed to talk about or, (laughs) or maybe that you're not allowed to talk about. (laughs) There's a there. It's
1: definitely, I feel like we're in a, quite a, um, I guess like a new era with running shoes in particular at the moment where everything's kind of hit this bottom of being soft and high stack and it has to go somewhere else because we can't have everyone only making those types of shoes. So back after next year, I think 2024 and then afterwards, will be really interesting in that I know just even from one franchise that sees a huge change is the Asics Keanu after 29 versions um, in the, I think the back half this year, will essentially be a neutral shoe um, which will shock a lot of people because it's probably one of the most common shoes that you would see in day to day. Most of those people don't need it and this change will actually mean that they could have been wearing it in the new version that is. So it's funny that a brand that's been so I guess focused on that being a mainstay has made such a big design change I mean it's been driven by something um ASICs will say their own testing um uh, but I think a lot of it comes from learnings at a consumer level too it's using geometry a, a clever geometry to provide more stability so I guess using an idea of stress being an equation of force divided by the area. So basically if we increase more surface area under the foot, the force gets distributed over, you know, a large area. So that makes sense to me. And I like shoes that use geometry as opposed to more invasive features because they provide a similar outcome, but they're, you know, less intrusive. Um, So that'll be interesting to see how that's taken up both in a clinical, you know, at a store level, and how people respond to it. Um, another one that I'm excited about, which is probably that you know underwhelming to some, the Brooks Ghost. <laughs> if you work in run specialty, the Brooks Ghost is is a like a hammer on your tool belt. We bring it out all the time. Um, it's not going to blow uh, everyone away, but it's just safe. and it fits well. Brooks are bringing out a shoe called the Ghost Max. Um, which is a higher stack version with a mild rocker. Um, it looks like it's going to be pretty stable. I'm excited about that as a shoe dog because that is a tool that I will you know, use regularly uh, and we always have a need for something like that in the store. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens as this year progresses because it's going to force um, people to come up with that next direction that shoes are going to go. Because right now there's a lot of you know bandwagon riding, um, but I think we're about to see those things shift.
0: Very cool that uh, Kayano news is almost jaw dropping. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I sometimes wonder because uh, you know the Keanu is almost like this cultural icon in in running shoe specialty. Maybe it might be best not to tell people that it's uh, changing to a neutral shoe. Because it'll probably be a better shoe for, for a lot of people anyway.
1: <laughs> I should clarify, it's not going to be neutral, but the, the post is softer than the rest of the midsole. Um, and it's just moved away from the traditional dual density structure. But it, it's a huge change. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what
0: happens there. Very cool. Mitch, um, that's probably all that I have in terms of questions. Any, any other cool uh, tidbits that you wanted to share or... Um, not necessarily. One thing I would just
1: draw back to again, as with, you know, we're seeing an increase in people shopping, uh, online, um, or, you know, limited product things, make sure you get the size right. Cause outside of getting the structure wrong, the biggest thing that is going to cause you issues in your footwear is how it fits. Um, so if you don't know, ask ask people who do know or go and try it on and get in store it's the best way to do it It might cost you 30 minutes more but you'll get a better outcome and when you add up the shoe fitting poorly even if it's half size wrong and you think about you know 180 steps per minute for an hour you know let's say seven times a week it is enough to cause you an issue
0: long term too definitely yep good good note to leave on and and uh for those that uh, do do end up um, going into a shoe store somewhere and trying on shoes, um, that, uh, that bigger proper fit may feel a bit strange uh, in the beginning, but um, we, we certainly haven't found anyone that ever goes back after they've found a shoe that fits properly. So, um, Mitch, thanks for coming into the uh, Grattan House Studios uh, and um, yeah, all the best.